From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Best is about the insight and the context that we get from our guests. It's a great way to catch up on some of the stories you might have missed on the Bloomberg. Stories you're not going to find in any other news organization. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best... You have to be a decision maker. What it takes to get invited to the World Economic Forum. We can shape the future in a positive way if we have also new innovative ideas. The founder of the World Economic Forum says some slots get held open for young, unheard of innovators. Uh, I was one of the first visitors uh, to see him when he came out of prison in 90. And Klaus Schwab on inviting Nelson Mandela. All this and more coming up in the next hour of Bloomberg Best. Ed, going to Davos for the World Economic Forum, it's usually a huge deal. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Denise, as you know, it's not happening in Davos, Switzerland this year, though, because of the pandemic. Yeah, that's right, Ed. It'll be in Singapore this year in May instead of earlier in the year and partly virtual. Uh, But we did have a chance to hear from the founder and executive chairman of the forum, Klaus Schwab. He spoke on the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. And David begins here by asking Schwab about traditions at Davos and how it all gets put together. Check it out. So, Klaus, let me ask you, uh, in the end of January, for the last 50 years or so, the elites of the world, the most famous business people, the most famous uh, heads of state, gather in Davos uh, to talk about various global issues. Uh, This January, is that going to be possible? Yes, they will come together again during the usual Davos week but, of course, in a virtual form. It's so important to look at the agenda of uh, 2021 and to shape the agenda. We are at the crossroads, but the virtual meeting is not enough. So we combine it with a meeting where people really physically will meet again later in May. Hopefully, vaccines and uh, progress in testing will allow us to do so. Now, last year, President Trump spoke, and you've had uh, Xi Jinping in recent years. You've had Vladimir Putin, President of France, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, leaders from all over the world. Uh, To get these leaders, do you have to call them and say, you're personally invited, or do they call you and say, I want to come? No, usually uh, the presence is the result of uh, uh, longer... um, um, friendship in certain cases, or at least relationship. Uh, Just look at, I take a case, for example, Mrs. Merkel. Uh, When Chancellor, or Mrs. Merkel at that time, when there was the fall of the wall, and um, by the way, the World Economic Forum was 
very engaged and uh, essential in the German reunification because Chancellor Kohl and his East German counterpart met the first time in Davos and decided to go ahead with the unification. But at that time, there was a young uh, member from Eastern Germany appointed to the cabinet as uh, environmental minister and uh, we made her a young global leader. And she came regularly to Davos and so out of, uh, let's say, this first uh, invitation, uh, regular uh, participation has developed over the last years. And I could go on and on. Um, usually the people who are coming to Davos are part of this, what I would call, Davos community uh, of regulars. So of all the famous people that have come to make speeches, who was it that drew the biggest uh, attention of all the people you had? I think uh, it's difficult uh, because it was always related to the specific timing when someone came. Um, for example, when President Trump came, uh, he was the first year in, in uh, the office. But for me, the most important um, or the most memorable participant certainly was uh, Nelson Mandela. So, Klaus, you've got a lot of prominent people coming, business people, government people. Do they call you sometime and say, my hotel is not adequate or I need more passes or what are the complaints or how do you shield yourself from all these complaints that people might make about they need a bigger hotel room or they need more entourage uh, passes or something? Because most of, uh, with most of those people I'm in touch, uh, more on an intellectual basis, on a political basis, on a conceptual basis. So fortunately, they don't always dare to call me if there are such matters, but they call my staff and uh, really insist um, because Davos is a place for skiing, uh, the hotel infrastructure is not like in a big city, uh, but I think everybody over time now accepts um, what is important is the personal contact, the frank exchange of ideas, so you make certain sacrifices in terms of your personal comfort. Why did you pick Davos? There are many great cities in Switzerland. Why did you not do it in Geneva where you were living or why not some other resort in Switzerland? I want to avoid a big city. I wanted to create a, a true global village where people meet on the streets. Uh, it's, Davos is a village. Davos had the necessary infrastructure in terms of uh, hotels and also a great uh, Congress house. So for those who haven't been there, uh, how do you get invited to go to Davos every year? Who gets to go? You have to be um, a decision maker, either in politics or in business, but also in civil society. And in addition, we invite always young people, of course, the media, uh, scientists. So it's a true mirror of uh, global stakeholders, which means um, of all walks of society. If somebody is watching you and says, I've never been invited to Davos, I'd like to go, do I just send a letter to Klaus Schwab and say, I'd like to come? I would read the letter because I'm always uh, curious about um, new people and um, as an example, I just got an email, I don't know where he has my email address from, from a, um, a young girl, in 16 years old in uh, India, 
who has done extraordinary things to help the community um, in terms of uh, practical approaches um, uh, to deal with environmental issues, particularly with plastics. So we have uh, a certain open house for everybody who, who has an innovative spirit because we want to shape the future and let's not forget uh, uh, we can shape the future in a positive way if we have also new innovative ideas. Now, some people say, well, Davos is, the, is for the elites. And every year when Davos occurs, the end of January, you get articles in newspapers saying, this is where the elites are gathering. How do you respond to people say it's just for the elites of the world? Yes, of course, uh, all the top decision makers are in Davos. But it's only half of the truth. You have, uh, in addition, many people um, not very well known, particularly not known to the media. I just give you some examples. I invited um, uh, Mrs. Ahern when she still was a member of the parliament. Um, we invited um, uh, people like Mandela, uh, I was one of the first visitors uh, to see him when he came out of prison in 90. Uh, so I brought him 92 to Davos. It was a remarkable historical event because it was the first time he came together uh, with, at that time, uh, President Clerk. And um, it was demonstrations that apartheid has stopped in, uh, in South Africa. So there are many of those people, young, um, not very well known, but those are the people who shape the future. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's talk about your background first and then how you came to create what's known as Davos. So... Where did you grow up? I grew up in a middle-sized town just uh, north of Switzerland in Germany. And I actually experienced still uh, the horrors of World War II. I remember how I was sitting with my teddy bear in uh, our shelter. Um, but we were actually fortunate because my father was working for a Swiss company and was also active for the International Red Cross. So we could cross the border at any time between Germany and France and, and Switzerland. And what struck me and what probably influenced my whole life was to cross a kind of line, an artificial line, the border between Switzerland and Germany. And on the one side, there was peace. And on the other side, there was war. I think it was a very important element for me and uh, a driver to devote my life to dialogue, to reconciliation, to working together in order to solve issues. 
And so you went to school then in Germany and, and in high school in Germany? Yes, I went to high school in Germany, but then uh, studied in uh, Switzerland uh, where I uh, did at the same time uh, a, a studies in mechanical engineering. Uh, but at the same time I studied uh, economics and I concluded both uh, with a master's degree of course and afterwards with a doctorate. And then my father felt um, in order to do real a career in, in business, you have to go to Harvard Business School. So I applied to Harvard Business School, was accepted, but then I wrote to Harvard Business School and said, look, uh, to Dean Baker, look, I have two doctorates. I want to come to the second year immediately. And he wrote back, no way. So what happened afterwards, I found a school in the, at that time we didn't have the internet yet, it was a big catalogue. I found a, a center which was called Litauer Center and today is the Kennedy School. And I discovered if you, did, if you accepted at the Litauer Center, you can cross-register everywhere in the Harvard system. So that's what I did. I uh, uh, registered with uh, the Kennedy School went to all the classes of um, the Harvard Business School, second year, and suddenly I got an invitation from Dean Baker to have tea with him in this little uh, president's house. And he said, you are the first one who outfoxed our system. From now on, cross-registering will only be possible for two courses or for two classes. But for me, this year at Harvard, it changed my life because I met also people like Henry Kissinger, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and I became much more interested in political, general economic, societal problems. So uh, after you finished at Harvard, you came back to Germany or Switzerland? I got a phone call from a famous Swiss industrialist, uh, Mr. Schmidt-Heine, and he told me, look, uh, you have the Harvard experience, um, I just merged two companies, uh, one 10,000 people company with another big uh, industrial group, the Sulze Group, which still exists. Why don't you come and you are responsible for the merger? Uh, so I went through a hard school because I had to lay off people. Um, but after two years, let's say the job was more or less finished. And uh, I asked myself what to do now. And uh, I got an offer from the University of Geneva to do teaching. And I felt with all the uh, academic experience I have accumulated, business experience, I should spend one or two years teaching. At the same time, I got an offer from, a, from the German Machine Building Association. Uh, you have been at Harvard, you have um, uh, business experience. Why don't you write a book for our members? on modern management. So I sat down and asked myself, what is actually the purpose of uh, a company? And that's when I came up with the stakeholder concept, which means that a company is not just an economic unit, but a social organism. And it has to serve all those who depend on the company, who have a stake in the company, like uh, the people working in the company, the community that is active in. So that was the big, let's say, beginning actually of the Davos idea, because the Davos idea is the stakeholder 
capitalism, so stakeholder responsibility. Okay, so you're back at the University of Geneva, you're teaching economics, is that what you're teaching? I was teaching actually leadership, um, corporate management, and okay. son, uh, as a professor, I was, I, I should say frankly, a little bit bored after all the previous experience. I had written this book. Son, I felt, why not to create a platform where business leaders could meet their stakeholders, which means uh, political leaders, but also um, outstanding voices of society. So um, I got, uh, I had made some savings and uh, I got some money from my parents and that's how I started uh, the Davos um, uh, platform, um, which is now called the World Economic Forum. And actually, um, I incorporated it immediately as a not-for-profit foundation because I recognized if I wanted to attract governments, uh, it cannot be a for-profit, um, a profit-making uh, venture. So, so had you made it a for-profit venture, you think it would not have become as big as it has become? No, certainly not, because um, uh, now uh, we have the trust of everybody because people know we are serving a purpose and we are not serving our own interests. What year was it that you had your first conference? It was 1971 and there were 444 people and actually I, I hired one employee because I needed some experience in, um, uh, in how to run a conference. Uh, that's how I met my wife. She was my first hit and my first collaborator. So you've now been married for how many years? Next year it will be 50 years, David. 50 years, okay. So you're gonna have a big party at Davos to celebrate the, the 50th uh, wedding anniversary? No, we are more, uh, well, let's say, a private family. I think we will do it. We married in a very little church in a mountain valley, uh, which cannot, uh, let's say, uh, give room uh, to more than probably 20, 30 people. Uh, so we will go back, certainly, to the church if, if COVID allows us to do so. What was it that propelled Davos, as we're calling it now, or World Economic Forum, to go from a 444-person event to a global phenomenon. What was it that actually changed things that made it so popular and so uh, important to people to attend? I think if I look um, over the last 50 years, it is the uh, conviction uh, that uh, the big issues in the world need a collaborative approach. Um, business has to interact with government leaders, but also if you want to plan long-term, you have to know how um, customers feel, how the young generation feels, uh, what experts are thinking. So Davos became a place uh, where you really could absorb what the future will bring you. I think uh, um, intellectual or contextual intelligence, as I would, to know what's going on, not only now, but uh, what will happen in the future, to, co to connect the dots, became more and more important for business leaders when they looked at their long-term strategies. Over the years, the 50 years or so, have there been one or two or three 
events that have happened at Davos where a global leader of one country met with a global leader of another country and actually as a result a peace agreement broke out or something like that happened? Does that happen very much? It happens. Um, for example, um, we at a very critical moment 30 years ago we prevented probably a war between Turkey and Greece. Uh, even if, unfortunately, we didn't solve the animosity. Um, we were the only platform for many years which brought uh, Israeli leadership and the Arab leadership together in Davos, as you know, David. We try um, always to be a platform uh, of good services. I would even say in the best Swiss uh, tradition, because like Switzerland, the World Economic Forum is independent, impartial, and uh, non-political. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So many people that build organizations uh, like yours, who's been over 50 years now, they want them to continue forever. What do you hope will happen uh, subsequent to your not being the executive chair? Will it continue or can it not continue without you? I have built a very um, strong governance structure, not only with the board of trustees, but also with the managing board. The forum um, is now an organization uh, with um, offices around the world, in China, Tokyo, US twice, and also we have our uh, Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in um, San Francisco. Um, I think uh, there are many capable people, and uh, if something happened to me, I think the spirit uh, would uh, survive. What is it you're most proud of having created over the 50-year period of time? It's a gathering place or a network of, or community. What is it that makes you most proud of what you've done? I think uh, there are many, many um, examples where we uh, took an initiative or we provided uh, a solution. I'm personally very proud, maybe as an academic, uh, that uh, stakeholder capitalism is now uh, broadly accepted and um, uh, has been even um, in the corona uh, crisis shown as being a more, more robust model uh, for a business uh, compared to one company which is only uh, aiming at short-term profits. So Klaus, now when you call somebody, any head of state in the world, or you email anybody, does it take more than five minutes or two minutes or a minute for you to get a call back? Because you know, I, everybody knows you, everybody wants to talk to you. How hard is it for you to get anybody on the phone? I assume not too hard. I would say it's not too hard, but certainly not within a minute or uh, uh, sometimes it takes a week. Um, but um, uh, certainly um, 
most people see, I have met every leader probably around the world, with the exception of the last Pope. I try to take out of all those meetings um, the very best. And um, um, David, if I may, um, when you meet those people, you ask yourself, what is actually, what, what, what makes a leader today? I have a very simple definition. Uh, it takes um, brains, soul, heart and muscles. Now, uh, the brain stands for professionalism. You have to know what you are uh, dealing with. Uh, the soul stands for having a compass which gives you direction. It may be a vision, it's your values. And the heart is for passion. You have to be passionate about what you are doing. And the muscles is for being able to implement um, your ideas, your vision, uh, to translate your values. And I have to say, when I look around in the world, all the leaders I have met, there are actually only very few who um, respond to all four criteria. But again, the person who is outstanding, the best role model, is certainly Nelson Mandela. Well, I'm going to just conclude by saying I've met a lot of great leaders as well, but I would also say one that I know who has uh, brains, soul, heart, and muscle is Klaus Schwab. So congratulations on what you have done, Klaus. I hope you're very proud of what you've built, and I look forward to seeing you uh, not too, too long from now. Thank you very much, David. And you've been listening to Klaus Schwab. He's founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum on the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. And that's it for this hour of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.